the first thing you think about, first thing that comes to your mind when someone mentions the death of Jesus Christ? You don't have to say it out loud, but what's the first thing that comes to mind? What do you think of? Maybe there's different things at different times. You may think of the physical suffering that he went through, um, that he endured on the cross. Maybe you think of the atonement that was made, the blood that was shed specifically for your sin on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin. Of course, those, those two aspects are true, and there's many other aspects to the cross. He did suffer physically on the cross, and atonement was gloriously made for our sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And I would guess most people probably think of, of one of those two things when they think of the cross. But when you read about the crucifixion in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel we're in, the Gospel of Mark, there's a different emphasis here that I think we miss very often. And I don't know why we miss it, because it is all over this account of the crucifixion. I think this is Mark's main emphasis in his account of the crucifixion, and I want to try to show you that this morning. One author said that the question that we typically ask, why did Jesus die, is a good question, but it's not the ultimate question that should frame our thinking about his death. Why did Jesus die is good, but more to the point, why was he crucified? Why did he die by crucifixion? What is it about crucifixion that was necessary for him to endure. I think the Apostle Paul saw this as the heart of the issue, Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, Paul saw something significant about the fact that Jesus died on a cross by crucifixion. The manner in which he died was significant. It wasn't just the fact that he died, but it was the way in which he died that was so important to the Apostle Paul and I think to Mark as well. Why is it so important that Jesus was crucified? Because crucifixion wasn't just designed to kill, although it certainly was, it was designed to humiliate the victim. It was designed to dehumanize the person who was crucified. Listen to how this same author framed this. Oops. Here, in a few words, is a fundamental insight with which to view the crucifixion. If Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, which I think is how most of us think of it, it's, it's a death. He died. That's the point where our thinking stops. Even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Now, I know in my own life, the death of Jesus, the idea of the cross can become so commonplace that it loses 
the sort of gut-wrenching punch of what actually happened to Jesus and what he experienced there on the cross. But this morning, I want to try to let the gospel writer, Mark, explain to us in his own words what Isaiah 53.3 points out to us. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Why do you hide your face from someone? It's when their appearance brings such shame that you feel the shame just from looking at that person. We esteemed him not. And I think that's what Isaiah is pointing out here. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark 15, verses 16 to 32, the beginning of the crucifixion account where he's actually crucified. And I want to do two things this morning, two hopefully very simple things, but hopefully impactful things. I want to show you, I want to prove to you from Mark 15 that the dominant thread in the crucifixion was the narrative of shame, degradation, and mockery that Jesus endured. Because I don't think we think of it that way. I think we think of it as a death, a very painful death for us as an atonement, and it is those things, but part of the reason it's an atonement is because he was shamed, dehumanized, and mocked and scorned. And then secondly, I want to try to answer the question, why? Why is it so important for us to understand this as dehumanizing and mocking and scorning? And why did he have to endure such scorn? What is it about this specifically that is so important for our salvation and for our own lives? So two points this morning. The first one of these is I just want to prove to you from the text that Jesus endured shame, mockery, and degradation. And I don't think it'll be hard. So last Sunday, we saw his trial before Pilate, and that ended with the crowds chanting, crucify him, and Pilate giving in to the crowds for political expediency. And then we saw that the soldiers scourged Jesus, whipped him as they prepared to crucify him, delivered over to be crucified at the end of verse 15. But before they crucify him, now they're going to have a little fun with him. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So they actually take him back inside where Pilate is staying in the governor's headquarters up on this hill here, and they call together all the soldiers or all the guards who are stationed with Pilate at that time. I mean, you could probably hear the excitement in their voices. Hey, guys, come on. We're going to have a little bit of fun here with this guy that's about to be crucified. So look what they do in verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, of course, purple is the color of royalty. This probably would have been a fairly expensive garment, looking very nice, and I, I really don't know how a group of guards got a hold of something like this, but they had it nonetheless. So they put this on him. They also put together a crown of thorns and put that on him. 
Now, I want to adjust your thinking on this crown of thorns a bit here. We tend to think of this as something that was done to inflict pain on Jesus. There are two possible ways they could have made this crown of thorns. One is the way we traditionally think about it, which is taking the crown and having the thorns face down into his head, which may have been the case. But the other way they could have made this this crown is to actually have the thorns facing out from his head and to put the crown on his head. And so it may have caused some pain, but may not have. Either way, whether it caused pain or not, the pain is not the primary emphasis of why they put the crown on his head. Why do they do this? Verse 18, look there. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. The primary reason they put the crown of thorns on his head is to mock him. To make fun of him as a king. To present him as a king. And then to scorn him for the idea that he could possibly be a king in the situation that he's in at this moment. I mean, think about it. Pilate's first question to Jesus had been, you are the king of the Jews? And that was what he asked him. And it's that accusation that has gotten Jesus here, right? I mean, he was a man, if he claimed to be the king of the Jews, he was a man who was contradicting the imperial authority of Rome. And Rome would not tolerate that at all. You couldn't claim to be any sort of a political authority and not get in big trouble with the Roman government. But that idea of this man standing before these guards in his situation, in a purple cloak with a crown of thorns on his head, bleeding after he'd been whipped, probably close to death, scourged, with this man standing before them, weak, and beyond that, being a Jewish man, claiming to be a king, the idea of a Jewish king to these guards would have been hilarious, that a Jewish person, as Israel had been under the thumb of Rome for quite a while now, that a Jewish person would claim to be some sort of a political authority coming up against the Roman Empire is hilarious to these guys, and it brings out the mockery and the taunts. And what they do here when they say, Hail, King of the Jews, is they're parroting what you would say to Caesar if you saw Caesar. You would lift your arm up and you would say, Hail, Caesar, Victor. And so here they're saying the same thing and just twisting it a little bit for irony's sake to make fun of Jesus in this situation and to mock him, the idea that this man could be a king. Look at verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. The entire scene, I mean, you could picture a group of very rough guards around this man and they're getting going and the entire scene is meant to degrade him and to mock him and to scorn the idea that he could be a king. The reed they're using here is probably a scepter that they've given him and made him hold. And they take it from him and they smack him over the head and beat him with it. They're mocking him and spitting on him and kneeling down in front of him and pretending to honor this one who is obviously, in their minds, not a king. And so when they have their fun with him, probably continues for a little while, they take him and they put his own clothes back on him and take him out to be crucified. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
Now, it's interesting here in verse 20 that they put his own clothes back on him. You need to understand that one of the most dehumanizing aspects of crucifixion is that the victim was crucified naked. And the reason they probably put his clothes back on him at this point, they don't plan on leaving them on him. That will happen when he gets out to the crucifixion site. But they put his clothes back on him because they have to lead him through the city of Jerusalem, through part of the city, to get outside the city to crucify him. And Jews obviously had very, very strict sensibilities about public nudity. And so to parade a man through the city naked would have been very, very offensive to the Jewish people. And so to avoid that, they put his clothes back on him in order to get him outside of the city. I hope this is a little bit uncomfortable this morning, because it should be as we think about what happened to our Lord and what he went through. So it's important for you, as they led him out to crucify him, that you understand that Jesus would not have carried both of the beams that were used in crucifixion. There are a number of different ways that you could be placed on a cross. You could be placed on an X cross, you could be placed on a T cross, or you could be uh, placed on a cross that has the top of the vertical beam sticking out. And that's most likely the one that Jesus was crucified, and we can explain why a bit later. But the vertical beam that was used, the one we traditionally think of as a cross that Jesus was crucified in, the vertical beam would have been left in the place of crucifixion, and the horizontal beam would have been the one that Jesus carried. Now, the vertical beam would have been left in the place of crucifixion so that anyone who walked by it could see that vertical beam there, almost like a public gallows. And when you saw the public gallows, you would not want to do anything to end up on those public gallows. And it was the same idea with the vertical beam of a cross. And so they would have put this horizontal beam on Jesus' shoulders, and he would have wrapped his arms around it and had to carry his own cross, his own cross beam out to his place of death and crucifixion. Now, obviously, he's been scourged and beaten with a reed and spit on and mocked, and he's already in a weakened condition, and that beam was not light, and so this would have been a very difficult thing for him to do, and he can only make it so far. It appears that he made it outside of the city, but then he collapsed and couldn't carry this beam any further. Look at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, Roman soldiers had the right to conscript anyone they wanted to, to do things like this for them, to force them into some sort of service for them, which seems crazy and is probably one of the reasons that the Jews hated Roman occupation so much. But what's interesting here is they compel this guy, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross, but Mark mentions his two sons by name. And I think one of the reasons maybe that he does this is because in Romans, there's a man named Rufus who's in the Roman church, and Mark most likely wrote his gospel to the Roman church. And so it may have been one of the men in the Roman church was here, and his father was actually Simon, who carried Jesus's cross. We don't know for sure, but possibly could have been. That could be the connection here. Either way, the walk from the praetorium where Pilate was staying to the place of crucifixion was probably no more than 300 yards or so. And of course, crucifixions happened outside of the city, would have been along a main road, 
main passageway so that as many people as possible could see the victim on the cross. And the public exposure and having as many people as possible pass by was part of the goal of crucifixion in shaming the victim. Public humiliation, exposure. So they come to a place called Golgotha, verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now I want you to notice here, it's not called a hill. It's actually not called a hill anywhere in the scriptures. It's called a place. Place of the skull probably doesn't mean it looked like a skull. It probably means there was often people who died there. It's not called a hill till centuries later. Some pilgrims to Jerusalem called it a hill. But either way, when they arrive, something else happens that I think is intended to bring shame and mockery on Jesus. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, if you're following along in the story here, they, the ones who offered this to him, is most likely the soldiers. That follows in the flow of the story here. No one else is mentioned. Now, there are two possibilities as to why these soldiers would offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. The one that you commonly hear, and it may be true, but the one you commonly hear is, this was given to people dying in order to dull the pain and to make it easier. But myrrh was a spice that was added to wine in order to make it taste better, not as a narcotic to dull the pain. Frankincense was given as a narcotic to dull the pain, but not myrrh. So why would they do this? This was actually a drink that was given to royalty many times. And so this could be, before they actually put him on the cross, this could be another instance where the soldiers are mocking him for his claims to be a king and to royalty. And so they once again offer him this drink and mock him and scorn him and treat him like a king, and he refuses to enter into the mockery. And once he refuses the drink, they crucify him. And it's stated so simply in the Gospel of Mark, isn't it? Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So you can see there they divided his garments before they actually put him on the cross. They do strip him of all of his clothes. Now I understand we're used to seeing artwork of Jesus on the cross with a loincloth there because you want it to be appropriate, but there's no reason to think that they allowed him even the least shred of dignity on the cross. And so the reality is, is they probably put him on the cross completely naked in order to increase the scorn and the shame and the mockery from those who were passing by. So at this point, they would have nailed his hands through the wrists to the horizontal crossbeam that he had partially carried that Simon had brought to the place of crucifixion. And then they would have used long poles to take that crossbeam and to put it up into a notch on the vertical beam And to put him up there on the cross, the vertical beam was already in the ground. And then, of course, they would have nailed his feet to the cross, either going through the near the Achilles tendon to the side of the cross or going through the front to fix his feet to the cross. And all of that happened around the third hour, 9 a.m. or thereabouts. But it is a very simple statement of his crucifixion here by Mark, isn't it? 
Mark doesn't draw our attention to the physical agony that Jesus experienced on the cross, the physical pain. He doesn't even mention the nails. His major emphasis has been on the shame of crucifixion, the mockery that Jesus has experienced. And that continues in verse 26. Look there. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So it was customary for the Romans to fix the charge against the person above the person's head or to hang it around the person's neck while they were being crucified as a way to detour those who saw it from committing the same crime. You don't want to do this because you'll end up like this. But here, they don't necessarily put the charge over his head. They just write the statement, the king of the Jews. What a cruel, ironic joke to present this man who's being publicly shamed, not receiving any glory from anyone at this point. He's being publicly shamed, crucified, bleeding and killed to present him as the king of the Jews. And crucifixion lifted the person up almost as a mock enthronement, put them above everyone else, certainly not to receive glory, but to receive scorn and shame. One biblical scholar described it like this. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. That's why you crucified someone. Some of you will remember the uh, genocides that took place in Rwanda in 1994. If you've ever read about those, um, there were two different ethnic groups there. Uh, the Hutu majority uh, killed between 500,000 and a million of the Tutsi minority. And one of the things that came out of that is the Hutu majority would call the minority group cockroaches. Now, why did they do that? Because it's much easier to commit physical violence against a person when you think of them as not a person, when you think of them as an insect or as a cockroach or as an animal. It's much easier to do it that way. They're less than human. They're not worthy of dignity and not worthy even of life. Crucifixion was designed to treat a person as an insect, as someone who was not worthy of life and not worthy of any shred of human dignity. That's why you crucified. Of course, Jesus wasn't crucified alone, and this only adds to the shame. Look at verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus was placed in the middle. He was the most well-known, most significant of these men being crucified. But what's interesting here is the way Mark describes the two robbers. Instead of just saying that Jesus was placed in between them, he says one on the right, one on the left. It's kind of a clunky way to describe Jesus as being in the middle. And I think he does that because he's echoing back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 37, when James and John request to be seated on Jesus's right and left hand in his glory. 
Well, Jesus certainly isn't experiencing glory right now, and I think Mark wants us to see the contrast between glory and the shame and the scorn that he's receiving right now in between two criminals. So I hope it's become clear so far that the focus of this is on the mockery and the shame and the scorn that Jesus has endured. And while it's been bad enough so far, now Mark turns our attention to people specifically mocking Jesus for the work that he came to do. This is the rest of this account. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the crucifixion took place on a main road going into Jerusalem, and those who pass by take the opportunity to mock Jesus openly. Now remember, just a few days earlier, Jesus had received quite a bit of popular support in the temple as he was teaching and contradicting the religious leaders, but now all of that has evaporated, and nobody wants any part of a man who has been publicly condemned by the Roman Empire. So now people take the opportunity to mock him for what he said. Remember, this was the charge that was leveled against Jesus before the the Sanhedrin, before the high priest. And apparently this charge about the temple would have been passed around the city. So people knew this, and they're mocking it. And the scorn here is aimed at the idea that if Jesus really claimed to be able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then he possessed some sort of supernatural ability or power. And so a guy who has that sort of power or ability surely would be able to save himself from being crucified. Coming down off the cross would be no big deal for a guy like this. But the general public aren't the only ones who are mocking him. Look at verses 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So the members of the Sanhedrin have headed out to the crucifixion, and they take the opportunity to laugh and mock Jesus as well. Their derision of him is focused on the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. Look at verse 32. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Deliverer, That's what a Messiah was, a deliverer. And so their idea is, what kind of a deliverer can't even deliver himself from being killed? How are you going to help anybody else if you can't even help yourself? And to make matters even worse, the lowest of the low in this situation mock him as well. The guys being crucified, subject to public shame along with him, turn on him and begin to mock him. Look at the end of verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The lowest of the low in the same predicament turn on him and mock this idea of him as a king and a deliverer and having some sort of supernatural ability. Now the entire, I hope you see, the entire story is riddled with 
dark irony and humor. There's a lot of people laughing and mocking into this story. What kind of a king is crucified? This makes no sense to human logic. Jesus was shamed, he was degraded, he was dehumanized, he was mocked. Why? Why does Mark go to such great lengths to present Jesus as being scorned and shamed and mocked here? Hebrews 12.2, if you remember that verse, we'll we'll look at it in a few minutes. But Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus despised the shame. There was shame Massive amounts of shame that were associated with crucifixion. Jesus literally looked with contempt, with mockery, on shame. He despised the shame. He mocked shame in order to endure the cross. Why? Why is it so important to see this? That's our next point this morning. Two reasons that Jesus endured the shame. First of all, to pay our sin, he must take our Shame. And here's what I mean by that. Shame is tied so closely to sin. Shame is tied so closely to sin. And so to pay for our sin, Jesus must take on our shame. Now make sure you hear what I'm saying this morning, all right? I know that people have misplaced shame. Right? I understand that as a category, that people feel shamed for things that they had not, didn't have control over. And I'm not saying that shame is always tied. When you feel shame, it's tied to a specific sin that you committed in your life as a one-to-one ratio. That's not what I'm saying there. There is such a thing as misplaced and false shame. That's very true. People that have experienced abuse or have been sinned against can experience that sort of shame on an ongoing basis when they were not responsible for that sin. So that is true. But shame is in the world because of sin, and sin is tied closely to shame. Shame entered the world because of sin, and when we do sin, there should be a sense of shame about it. We shouldn't be able to sin with impunity and just sort of shrug it off and think it's no big deal. Think about the Garden of Eden. What happened after Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They hid because they knew they were naked. They were ashamed. They were afraid to be in God's presence because of their sin, and their sin created shame in them. They were horrified. They were embarrassed, beyond embarrassed, to be in God's presence. Shame is a part of God's judgment on sin. It is the natural result of sin. Shame flows naturally from sin and from wrongdoing. And so when you see in the Old Testament that God judges the nation of Israel for their sin, one of the things he does is he brings shame on them. They should be ashamed, and he wants them to feel that shame because of their sin. I want to show you a very graphic description of this that's in the Bible in Nahum chapter 3 this morning to help you understand how this works. And this is actually given to Nineveh. God says this to them, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Sin is shameful. It is dehumanizing to give ourselves to sinful acts and to sinful thoughts. And here's the the thing about shame. It brings shame. Sin brings shame to the one committing the sin, or at least it should. But so often it ripples out and affects other people with shame. I mentioned someone who's been abused, either sexually or physically, earlier. The victim experiences shame when they've not been the one who has sinned and sin, they've not been the one who's done sin. They have been sinned against and sin creates that sort of environment where it causes shame in people. And so we have a world that has now been filled with people who want to hide from one another and who want to hide from God. And so paying the penalty for sin doesn't simply mean enduring a high level of physical agony to take care of our sin. Enduring and paying the penalty for sin means that Jesus took our shame for sin on himself and he endured it. Another author, the same author I quoted earlier, put it like this. When we say that Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, it means quite specifically that he suffered the shame and the degradation that human beings have inflicted on one another and that he, above all others, had done nothing to merit. He did not deserve to be ashamed or mocked or scorned, but he took that on himself and paid for the sin that brings shame to the one committing it and to the one who has been sinned against. And if you go back to Hebrews, you understand why he was able to do this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was able to endure the shame because of the joy that was set before him because he knew that this was the path of redemption for the people that he loved. And that brings us to our second reason that Jesus endured the shame. By taking our shame, he freed us from shame. And this is where it begins to come to bear on our lives this week, right now. I've tried to stress during this series the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. And I hope you've picked that up. Almost every sermon has been titled something for you. This morning's was shamed for you as a substitute. And that certainly applies to this topic of shame. When we see that Jesus took the mockery and the scorn, we know that he did it for us. So what is shame? What are we talking about here? What did Jesus take for us? Here's a helpful definition. I'm sure there are others, but I think this is really helpful. It gets to the heart of it. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. 
That's exactly how Adam and Eve felt, I'm sure, in the Garden of Eden. But let's sort of work through this a little bit. Shame is a deep sense. It's not a, it's not a surface emotion all the time. It's something that goes much deeper than that and gets to the core of who you are as a person. You feel unworthy and unacceptable on a regular basis, and it begins to shape everything that you do in life. Shame is a sense of being unacceptable, being on the outside, being dirty and unclean, being unworthy. It results in the fear of being exposed or humiliated. Now, I would venture to guess this morning that the vast majority of people in this room experience shame on a regular basis. You have a deep sense of being unacceptable. Now, you may not realize that it's coming from shame, but we try to cover this in a number of ways. And I think a lot of our lives are spent trying to cover up this sense of shame. Some people retreat into depression or lash out in anger to try to keep people at arm's length, to keep them away because they feel exposed and humiliated, try to cover that sense of unworthiness. Some people develop habits of anorexia or cutting themselves to try to atone for feeling unclean. Some people present as the life of the party, everything's good. They present themselves as shameless to try to convince themselves that I don't have any shame when really it is there. Sort of a gnawing ache in your heart. Some people descend into addictive habits that try to mask the sense of unworthiness, and they may do it for a time, but ultimately it's self-destructive and creates more shame. The list goes on and on for the ways that people try to deal with shame. But this morning, I want to try to help with this. Shame comes from the fallenness of the world. And there's only one way to deal with shame. If the sense of shame is being feeling unacceptable ultimately before God then the only weapon in that fight is to understand that you have been made acceptable. You have been made on the inside, accepted by the one individual who truly matters. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was rejected by God so that we would be accepted by God. He was treated as worthless and dehumanized so that we could be counted worthy through him and before God and so that we could live up to what it means to be truly human. He was shamed so you and I could be counted as sons and daughters of God. So God, through the shaming of Jesus on the cross, has turned everything upside down. Everything's been turned on its head. We are weak, we are unworthy, we are outcasts, but we have been accepted by God and now we can boast in him. Boasting and being ashamed don't go together, do they? But now our boasting, as 1 Corinthians says, is in him alone. He is where we find our worth, our value, our acceptability, 
He is why we do not have to feel ashamed. And when we sin and we have that sense of guilt and of shame, then the proper thing to do is to take it to the cross where it has been paid for completely, finally, and forever. And rest in the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ. So I want you this morning to view the crucifixion of Jesus taking the shame of our sin, bearing the full weight and scorn of it, and freeing us from the penalty of it, and ultimately one day from the presence of it. I think a good place to end this morning is the second verse of the hymn, Man of Sorrows. And we'll sing this in just a minute, but let me read it to you before I pray. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, certainly on our own, we are unacceptable before you. We do not deserve anything, Lord. We deserve mockery and shame and scorn because we have rebelled against you as our creator and as the one who loves us. And yet, in our sin, you sent, Lord Jesus, you came to free us from our sin, to free us from shame, not so we could sin with impunity and sin as if it doesn't matter, so that we could, but so that we could grow in righteousness and be free from our sin and the slavement of it. Thank you for your work on the cross. I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.